The thing about the Name Your Price tool from Progressive is that by now you've heard a lot of ads about the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. We probably don't even need the words, the Name Your Price tool, to tell you that our humpback whale pup gives you options based on your budget. Or that our novelty hand buzzer helps you save on car insurance. And that's the thing about the tiny felt bag filled with marbles. At this point, you've heard a lot of ads about the elusive northern bobcat. The Name Your Price tool. <clears throat> the neighbor who baked you banana bread. Only from Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor, Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors Podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so this time we have on uh, on Books and Authors, we have Shobha Narayan, who's written Food and Faith, A Pilgrim's Journey Through India. Very interesting book. Hi, Shobha. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm Manjula. Maybe first we should read the flap so that the listeners know what your book is about first. Okay. Sure. Let's do that. What is the role of spirituality in your life? Is religion a part of your identity or does it make you uncomfortable? To answer these and other questions, Shobha Narayan approaches faith through perhaps its most nourishing aspect, food. She partakes of sacred food in shrines across India, Puri's Bhog, Amritsar's Langar, Parani's Panchamritam, Mathura's Pedas, Jewish Halwa in Mumbai, Jaipur's Rabadi, Ajmer's Kesarya Bhat, Goa's Feast and the Communal Prasad in Udupi Madurai and the Kumbh Mela. Food and Faith explores this powerful yet intimate intertwining of food with faith, history, myth and identity. So Shobha, tell me how you came to write this book. Hmm. So uh, Manjula, we spoke about this earlier, uh, but I grew up in a fairly devout uh, Hindu family and my mother is a devout Hindu and that has been a she's been a huge influence on my life. But because of that, or as a rebellion to that, I was, I always grew up uh, fairly uncomfortable with being categorized as religion, being categorized as a Hindu. I would dismiss it, disdain it, avoid it. Um, I think this came about because of two things. The thing I find fascinating is how religion and identity are linked and are also troublesome because of that linkage. And the other thing is also that I have been studied. There are studies that show faith is one of the most uh, nurturing aspects for life today, whether it is a Buddhist meditation technique that you follow or the Hindu puja, or even if it's nature worship or forest bathing, whatever, there are so many names nowadays, but faith mm. provides nourishment. So it's hard to dismiss that. So mm. that's how I approached it as a skeptical seeker who wants mm. to figure out a way. See, there, there's two things. One is you can say, okay, I grew up Hindu, but maybe I'll choose my own faith. And I'm attracted to Islam, the Sufi aspects of it, attracted mm. to Christianity in terms of the artistic aspect of it. I'm attracted mm. to uh, the Parsi faith. I mean, I'm a bird watcher. The whole notion of dying and having your body being eaten up by vultures is very attractive. attractive. So then the question is, you can disdain the religion you grew up with because you are intimately familiar with its flaws. Or you can choose to accept it and say, okay, you know what, this is, a, I grew up with it and I, it is as troublesome or as non-troublesome as the other faiths and let me go with mm-hmm. it. So I chose mm-hmm. the second part, which is to say Hindu's mythology, uh, Hindu mythology is 
fantastic i mean you know harry potter would uh, get a run for his money <laughs> and, and uh, we all, i mean if you grew up as a hindu you own it and you might as well make your peace with it. so this book was my making my peace with my faith okay you've been to all these places how did you chart out the book ha huh. so um the book began in kerala actually because i grew up in um, uh, sort of in i grew up in chennai but my parents mm. were originally from kerala so going to kerala mm. came very naturally and mm. the, it was a bit overwhelming project but the, there is a temple in kerala which is actually really beautiful it's called ambalapura mm. and the palpaisam mm. there is very famous at least in south india and yes, yes. that's where it began I had it, I had it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what I found really touching about that temple, and I didn't know this till I visited, is that this palpaisam is only three things. One is the rice, one is the milk, and the other is the sugar. And then they start it at five uh, a.m. and it's a giant, mm. orally, very beautiful orally, and they put all this mm. at certain times, and then you stir, and that's pretty much it. And it reduces, and it becomes. But what they do before taking it into the temple is the the guy and i have photos of this he will go stand outside the kitchen and he will literally call vasudeva as if he's calling for krishna to come and eat and i'm thinking you're doing this hey you're making this but this uh, word that uh, the my mother uses is bhavna which is that you have to imagine and you have to imagine that the god is eating you and i found this time and time again in every temple in shrinaji's temple um, they will this is a very god so whenever he wants to eat we feed him and we shut the doors <laughs> so <laughs> so this whole idea of imagination and now in california people are eating cannabis to achieve ecstasy i find this whole when you submerge your ego and you your mm. rational brain and you actually go out and call for krishna and think that he's going to come and eat your palpaisam it's uh, a wonderful thing Hmm. but this is a central uh, thing in in i mean in most religions no i mean bhavna this is even christians when they are having that wafer imagining yeah. it's the body of christ it's the same yeah. thing in a sense right yeah. and yeah. That, maybe that's central to religious experience and you know in, in in your book at some point you said oh you wish you could you know look at a cloud and believe see ganpati you know like yeah. how somebody yes, yes. because but, i have whatsapp forwards from people who has look at the there'll, there'll be one yagya or a fire or a havan and then they will circle one aspect of the fire and say there is Gan- ganesha has actually come for my havan uh, hmm. and you can i mean it's like a rorschach ink plot test you know they use yeah. that for you. but you have to quiet those rational voices in your head i think and i'm not there yet this book is a step towards that uh, like the whirling dervishes i have actually seen them in konya i've seen them i mm. when i visited turkey mm. uh, dance is a very beautiful way to access god and uh, my daughter learned kathak so i've seen mm. kathak dancers do it as well and mm. the way they dance the Sar- they imagine the krishna or the saraswati vandana mm. they actually the, the way they teach it is you you pretend that you're actually playing this veena you're sitting on a shweta lotus a white lotus and um it's it's and all of us who are in the field in the creative field manjula whether it is mm-hmm. you know journalism or podcast or using words 
we all of us need and revere and venerate imagination and this religion can be a path to cultivating imagination and you've pointed that out also that's why there's so many like rich um, you know uh, art forms that have emerged from it in every religious tradition i suppose you know yes correct hmm i found even you know <laughs> when you visit that temple and that lady i think ganga comes with you and suddenly she transforms into a uh, a kathakali uh, performer she does a ravana uh, ravana yeah so that was fascinating talk about that you know yeah. so uh, the next then uh, so i went to ambalapura and after that i went to this uh, uh, temple where they make this uniyapam this called kottarakara hmm. and yeah. the, the guide there was as you see this lady uh, ganga she lives next door to the temple and mm-hmm. kathakali is a very male dominated art form yes. as is yakshagana mm-hmm. in karnataka and yeah. the gods there is this wonderful essay uh, written by david shulman which uh, is uh, talks about witnessing a kudiyattam performance for 30 days and literally the performers dress up and they invoke the gods and the gods come into them mm-hmm. and this woman wearing a sari and you look at her she's actually she's not she's very unprepossessing you walk walk by her in the temple and you'll think okay one more of the devotees and then she stands there and she says i am going to become ravana and i'm thinking okay great and then she just transforms and i am watching as her expressions change her body posture change and you know the i got this what we call in tamil pullaripu or roma harsha or <laughs> watching her and that happened a few times the other time it happened it was in madurai near madurai there is a temple called aragar kovil and you it's hmm. not a famous temple and certainly i didn't know about it till i attended the, visited the temple for this book and there I, i it was a privilege actually the the main priest of the temple was sort of my guide but like priests everywhere he was trying to please multiple parties and spinning around vip has come they want special darshan somebody wants 10 agar kovil bade a day for so he's spinning like a top and then he says i'll give you an interview but you have to come before the last uh, the last worship and you come into this uh, little office and i'll be there getting ready and you can just interview so i'm going there and he is putting all his namams he's decorating his head he's decorating his body with this white paste and he's talking about it as he does it and it's like it was a very intimate um, scene because there i am a woman in a sari and he is bare chested with his long hair loose and he's he's dressing himself to go into the temple to worship the god and it's like wearing your mascara and your lipstick and everything <laughs> <laughs> speaking and between sanskrit and tamil and a little bit of english and he's explaining to me what the beauty of the temple is so that was also a pretty it was a very touching experience Hmm. hmm and i i found the essay on uh, ajmer also very interesting the hmm. uh, the the shrine the dargah there so talk about that you know ha huh. so uh, ajmer i had as a south indian you know it doesn't loom large in particularly if you're a south indian who has grown up in chennai yes you hear mostly about south indian temples and i, I yeah. and i i don't come from a hindi speaking family so ajmer hmm. i didn't know how big or how important it was and mm-hmm. uh, till i went there and so um 
you go there and once you go in again the same quiet and the same peace that pervades pretty much every place of worship that you see in a church you see it in the dargah so you walk in and mm-hmm. you have no idea what you're getting into but the difference is uh, again the smell of roses is there you have uh, the desi gulab is so pervasive in ajmer whereas in mm-hmm. south india you, you can smell the tuberoses rajnikanta yes. which is there in all the Indian temples and the Tolosi. So again, mm-hmm. I I think visiting temples and this is why I think people go is um, it is a sensuous experience and I think humans and we know this now because of COVID and all of us are sitting at home with computer screens. The mm-hmm. human heart longs for the tactile and the sensual and in every place of worship, be it a church or a mosque or a Yeah, Parsi. You go in there, you can smell the roses literally in Ajmer. You have a certain peace. You have, and then alternating with that is the cacophony of the Kavali singers or the priests' mantras in Sanskrit. So you have the bit of both, and then you yeah. go in, there and then you are with fellow seekers, and all of them are muttering and chanting, and they've all their bodies have quieted down. And if you feel the energy like all of us do, all of us uh, primates, including chimpanzees and apes, <laughs> we all can sense this energy. in spaces and we may not be able to articulate it but we certainly feel it and so then what happens is your blood pressure drops and your heart slows down and you go in there and you mm-hmm. somehow even you if you're a rational person like me or a seeker or a questioner some calm descends into you and you experience what we call shanti and then you go into this ajmer and everybody's wishes are there and you're one collective mass full of hope in want you, know, you have a problem that you cannot solve and you have come to give your manat to this higher power so that was extraordinary and in mm-hmm. ajmer people were singing and people um tears rolling down their eyes i don't see that in temples in gurudwara for example not as much mm-hmm. so that was a new thing i've watched all these people listening to the qawali and um it would make sense that in every church or any every place of worship there would be some people who are crying and sobbing and because you are going there because you have a horrible problem in your life that you cannot solve mm. i think the music of the qawali and sufi music in general um uh, certainly it touched the devotees i saw that day and they were mm. some of them were quietly crying some of them were sobbing so that mm. was the thing in ajmer and the um going in and you find again this i found in many temples is paradoxically the final inner sanctum sanctum sanctorum is an anticlimax and so it is with the dargah it's a huge uh, mosque and then you go in there into this tiny space and everybody is circle, circulating around it and then the the inner sanctum sanctorum you go there and you give your wish uh, some people there's a you give offer a little piece a garment and then you come out and then that's it so it's like yeah. uh, but this is always the case even kashi vishwanath mm-hmm. when i went there and you mentioned it like mm-hmm. when you go inside uh, and you the you know then it's it's not spec- as spectacular as you thought it would be perhaps in your in your mind's eye yes. right yes yes but the really? myths of kashi are uh, i mean uh, the place that it has amongst hindus and in their minds and i think it is truly i think it's a if i had to pick one pan indian temple that resonates high in the minds of uh, people i don't know about the northeast but certainly in south india like i said we have the kashi yatra we have the everybody mm. wants to go 
and die in Kashi. So, mm, <laughs> but as Jagannath Puri, even though it's an extremely important temple, uh, in, in Kanyakumari, they don't long to go to Jagannath Puri temple. They long to go to Kashi. That's true. That's true. And also, you know, I, like I was saying, I mean, I, I was quite struck by your Varanasi uh, chapter because your Kashi chapter, because uh, like you, you went in there and you stood and you watched the, I can't even, I couldn't even bring myself to look at Manikarnika for too long. Like when the boat was passing by the guard, mm-hmm. you know, I found it like too much mm-hmm. to, to behold continuously and you know I, I was with people who were like clicking photographs and thinking is there something wrong with me you know that I'm being so sensitive about this but you also you went there and you stood there and you watched right so I'm curious and you can answer it or not but I'm curious why you couldn't behold it is it that emotions overcame you or is it that you were thought it was a sacred site and clicking photographs I think it was both I think it was both and I thought you know uh, uh, it's death and you know and mm. something else and it's too huge for me to like be staring at it mm-hmm. yeah so uh, like many Indians I too am surrounded by a lot of elders and I find that there is a market disparity between how um, the devout view death and perhaps the doctors view death uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I and I'm in this difficult Trishanku position of being in the middle and mm. uh, writing a will, leaving directives of how you want to die and no, no uh, tube, tubes and stuff like that is a very rational way to do it. But mm. this the image of Shiva wandering around the ghats, um, the, the Harishchandra and the Manikarnika ghats, uh, whispering the Taraka mantra, to the dead mm-hmm. is a very uh, it's a I have I mean I have, like unlike Ramakrishna Paramahamsa who apparently mm-hmm. witnessed Shiva going from pyre to pyre and whispering this mantra but the, mm-hmm. I, if I visualize that image of somebody some figure some ghostly figure coming and whispering this mantra that will take you on this boat across to Moksha mm-hmm. I find mm-hmm. that a really uh, amazing thing and what I say in the book is I've I think we've taken the soul out of dying by making it so, uh, you know, we are talking about, uh, are we going to do a tracheostomy? Are we going to do ICU? I mean, the, this whole notion. But And when we talk about death to the mo- modern parlance, it's usually heart attack. So we don't mm. talk about So Kashi is a way for these mumukshus or the people who long for death to mm. go back and talk about death in the way that it deserves to be talked about. It's a passage, it's a milestone, it is a one going on a boat from one bank to the other bank. And mm-hmm. uh, I think Manikarnika Ghat offers a glimpse of that. And then, of course, you come out and then the, the you have to bargain and say, oh, I'll, I'll give you this much money to go, let me go in or <laughs> per cremation, how much does it cost? So, uh, but, uh, yeah, so that Kashi was a revelation. In many, on many levels, I think. There are two things that are unique about India, Manjula, that I discovered through the writing of this book. One is that we are a more is more aesthetic and why not embrace it? Which is this mm. whole idea of putting white tulips in the middle of your dining table, ditch it and do what uh, uh, Sanjay Garg does, which is to say, I'm going to put garlands and multiple things and marigolds and you know, like how wedding mandapams are done. So mm-hmm. embrace the more is more aesthetic. 
Hmm. And in our, if you look at the old Raja Ravi Verma paintings of uh, uh, of uh, women, like there is the Kasimale, then there's another Mangal Sutra, there's the red Adige with rubies. It's like one after another after another. Whereas now we say little black dress with one earring. That's it. That's not an hmm. Indian aesthetic. That was one. The second one was this Roman, uh, Romanian scholar called Mircea Eliade. I think I'm pronouncing him right. Um, he, I write about him in the book and he wrote this yes. book called The Sacred and the Profane. Mm-hmm. And I am not a scholar of his work. I have read some of his books, actually this one. But one mm-hmm. thing he said struck me, which is that if you look at old cultures, whether it is Egypt or Greek or Rome, which are now mm-hmm. and China, Um, very few ancient civilizations still have a remnant of their cultural and religious past that occupy their cities today. You go to uh, Egypt and uh, you don't see Ra or Anubis or anybody on yes. street corners. The Greek gods Adonis or uh, Aphrodite are now have now been taken over by children's literature and uh, are written about. But you go to Greece. I've not been to Greece, but I've been to Egypt mm. and I've mm. been to Rome. But China too had amazing fire gods and goddesses and dragon goddesses. Now modern day China is, but India we have preserved our gods. Literally walk the streets. You go to a street corner, you will see a goddess. <laughs> so I think that is really phenomenal that we have not created this schism. You know, it's like a ravine in the middle, and we've jumped on the other side of civilization, like many other cultures have. Um, mm. Kashi, I I saw this with my own eyes in the banks of the Ganga. There was a all the cliches about India actually exist, and we should be proud of it. Which is a man in a turban doing a snake charming routine with a cow walking <laughs> and a banyan tree for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we have not cut off the we have not cut off the sacred from the mundane, the sacred from the profane. They coexist mm-hmm. in India and in a very jubilant and sensuous and more is more fashion. Mm-hmm. That's Shobha Narayan, author of Food and Faith: A Pilgrim's Journey Through India. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. Progressive presents an interview with your upstairs neighbor. Hi, I'm Tia. The upstairs downstairs neighbor dynamic is so special. We have our own language. Like when I scream at my mom on the phone, the people downstairs bang on the ceiling to show their support. The nighttime's the best time to rearrange furniture. I call it midnight feng shui. And if I sleep through my alarm in the morning, they bang on my door to wake me. So thoughtful. Progressive can't save you from your upstairs neighbor, but we can save you money when you bundle renters and auto insurance with us. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations.